This is the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I really hope that you guys enjoy today's show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. My guest yet again is Cody Cook. Cody Cook is the host of the podcast Cantus Firmus and an author. He's written, he's written several really good books. The book that we're going to be discussing on the show today is called Unhitched, Why Jesus Can't Be Divorced from the Old Testament. Cody, welcome back to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. Thanks, man. And I was going to say congrats on, on you getting picked up by the, uh, the LCI and being part of their uh, podcast community. That's awesome. Oh, hey, I really appreciate that, man. It's it's a really exciting opportunity. I like working with all those guys. And I guess technically you and I are coworkers now, right? Since you sit on the board for them or something like that. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm considered part of the team, which just means that I'm uh, when I send an article, I'm no longer listed as a, a guest writer. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the real you're one of the real writers for else. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, the book that you wrote, Unhitched, is is fantastic. And in that book, you are addressing this phenomenon where there are a lot of Christian leaders. So th- th- this isn't uh, this isn't something that's coming from outside of the church, but there are a lot of Christian leaders that either want to marginalize or completely ignore the Old Testament as it relates to Christian practice. And so there are a lot of different thinkers that have approached this problem in different ways. Uh, but but there's kind of this consistent theme that the Old Testament is either inadequate or outdated and we need to to do away with that or at least limit its impact on Christian faith. What motivated you to write a response to this phenomenon? Yeah, so uh, the New Testament theologian G.K. Beale, I think I've referenced this in at least a couple of my books because I, I, I'm always, I think, sort of ramming in how important the Old Testament is. Uh, but he, he referenced this personal study by uh, uh, Roger Nicole, and he noted that there were uh, 295 separate quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that, that basically makes up about 4.5% of the entire New Testament, uh, uh, basically about 352 verses, which would mean that one out of every 22 and a half verses in the New Testament incorporates an Old Testament quotation. So, and, and that actually doesn't even include a lot of allusions to and reflections of the Old Testament. Um, so things that Richard Hayes, the theologian Richard Hayes would call echoes of the Old Testament. So when you add those, I, I can't even imagine what we're looking at. I mean, the book of Revelation, for example, doesn't quote the Old Testament, but it, it, it's it's basically, it's almost like a pastiche of like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, so, so yeah, so basically, you know, thinking of it that way, you know, the Old Testament is so integral to the Christian faith that it's, it's almost like a, to take it out, is like to take your skeleton out of your body, right? You know, you, the New Testament wouldn't hold up if we took the Old Testament out of it. Um, and so, uh, and I think also you can't really read the New Testament and understand it if you aren't familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so the New Testament authors, um, in, in particular, as you're reading the New Testament, they are understanding Jesus and his mission and his identity in light of what was written before in the Old Testament. Um so knowing how indispensable the Old Testament is to understanding Jesus and his gospel, um, I, I kind of I became very concerned about attempts that I was seeing from theologians uh, who were trying to create a faith where the Old Testament is treated as either not inspired or not essential to our faith. Uh, and I would argue that it's both. 
Yeah. Well, let's. So in your book, you're responding specifically to three thinkers, and the three thinkers that you pick are great because they kind of represent the spectrum of Christians who want to either like marginalize or reject the Old Testament. Like you said, it, it's it's different depending on the uh, the person who's making the argument. So before we get into what each of these uh, authors are claiming, could you uh, name all three of them and kind of briefly describe their perspective on the Old Testament? Yeah, so we've got uh, Keith Giles. He's got, I would say, probably the most extreme out of the three uh, because he is he's seeing the the Bible really as a whole as not um, all inspired, <laughs> and so he picks on the Old Testament uh, in, in a unique way. Uh, but he'll also pick on uh, you know Paul and the Gospels a little bit. That sounds kind of like charged language, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> as, as seeing it not as um, not as necessarily inspired, right? Um, so he's kind of the most extreme. Uh, in kind of the middle, you have Greg Boyd, uh, who's done a lot of great work in other areas that I really appreciate. Um, but um, in particular, he spent a lot of time thinking about Christian nationalism and yeah. violence and sort of addressing it from a Christian perspective. And like what happens in a lot of these cases, when somebody starts getting into nonviolence, as a Christian nonviolence, Christian pacifism, whatever, um, they sort of put the cart before the horse. And then it becomes pacifism Christian as opposed to Christian pacifism. Um, and so what I think he's sort of doing is looking at some of these Old Testament passages where uh, God uh, is, is, is using judgment or violence, and, and he struggles with that, but he doesn't want to abandon inspiration. So he does this kind of halfway maneuver where he says that, well, it's inspired, but it's clouded. Uh, I don't exactly know what that means, but even after I've heard him explain it, um, but um, I guess I know what he means by it. I just don't think it necessarily makes a lot of sense. Uh, so that's the kind of the middle path. It's inspired, but it's clouded, right? And then um, on the kind of the more moderate side, I guess, you have Andy Stanley. He's more mainstream. Uh, Boyd is somewhat controversial for some of his positions. Giles isn't really like a a known theologian. He's this kind of in the sort of popular realm of sort of Christian thinking and theology. And he's, he's more progressive in a lot of, a lot of areas, but um, Stanley is, I guess you call him a theologian because he's doing theology, but he's more pastoral. Um, and so he's, he's this megachurch pastor and his approach is to basically um, say, well, yeah, the old Testament's inspired. I would never say that it's not, it's just not really relevant for our faith. <laughs> uh, specifically, it's not relevant when it comes to evangelism. So he would say it, it's not only not necessary for evangelism, but it's a liability. And so, um, and, and I want to say, uh, I, I was just reviewing my book and there's, there's, it might be in the footnotes where I, where I put it, but it wasn't in the main body at least. I believe that he's, he's said something along the lines of um, that he wouldn't be opposed to seeing the old Testament as like an appendix in the Bible, right? So it's there and it's important but we're going to put the New Testament first, and then the Old Testament is this kind of thing that we look to, um, you know, when we find it helpful. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at these guys. So we're going to start with Keith uh, Giles, and you said that he represents kind of the most extreme version of that position. So you briefly outlined his position a moment ago. Let's go into a little more depth. So what exactly is Giles' stance on the Old Testament, and how does he maintain the argument um, that the old—how does he maintain his interpretive approach to the Old Testament? Yeah, so, so, so as I mentioned, Giles argues that not everything in the Bible is truly inspired. And, and he has this test that he sort of uses that he encourages us to use to determine what is and what isn't inspired. Uh, and uh, I'll quote him here. Uh, Each of us who abides in Christ has the Holy Spirit living within. The actual word of God dwells inside 
uh, dwells inside of us. So we can use discernment when we read the scriptures or anything else to determine what is true or, or not true. End quote. So the primary criteria essentially that, that our spirit-led discernment has to work with uh, is this, according to Giles. And it's, does this sound like Jesus? Um, so Giles sort of has this picture. He thinks that we kind of kind of see clearly what Jesus is and what he looks like. And if we read anything in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but New Testament as well, uh, that doesn't sound like Jesus, then we throw that out. We use our, dis- our Holy Spirit-led discernment. We say, let me not throw it out, but we say it's not inspired, right? Um, but in practice, I think that Giles, what he really does is ignore parts of what Jesus says that contradict what he wants Jesus to look like. So it's not really... Jesus is the standard. It's it's Giles's reconstruction of Jesus that's the standard, um, because there are places where Jesus says things that uh, sound very much like the things that G- Giles would not want Jesus to say. <laughs> and um, and uh, you know, I I was able to interview him um, for this book, and, and there's a, an excerpt of that interview in the book um, where I kind of try to you know discuss that with him, and and, and, and I wasn't satisfied with his answers on that on that issue, but. Um, but, but yeah, to know more about that, you might have to read the book. But um, so anyway, that's, that's Giles's view, essentially, is that if it doesn't look like Jesus as he understands him, uh, then that's, it's probably not inspired. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really appreciated about your interview with him is that you really pushed the subjectivity of his interpretation of Jesus. And I know, like for me, one of my big influences was Albert Schweitzer and his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, which was written in like 1904 or 1905. He was looking back at like the first 150 years of historical Jesus research. And one of his big theses in that book is that all of these scholars had reproduced a Jesus that was congenial to their yes. own theological outlook. And so it seems like Giles is doing the exact same thing. He has his very subjective interpretation of Jesus, and that's going to be the hermeneutical framework that he uses to interpret the Old Testament. Sure, yeah, yeah. We've got you know, the marginal Jew Jesus, the apocalyptic preacher Jesus, <laughs> the gay magician Jesus. It's, it's really it's really whatever. The, um, uh, if you, I, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, uh, he used to write for Veggie Tales, and then he's, he's become kind of a more oh, of a political uh, Fisher? Phil Vischer? Is that oh, no, I was, thinking, I was thinking of the right wing, the guy. Uh, uh, he wrote the Bonhoeffer um, biography that was Oh, Metaxas. Metaxas, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, Metaxas yeah. does that a lot where, you know, Bonhoeffer is kind of taken out of his context and put in kind of a right-wing American context. Um, yeah, and that's something we do with Jesus too, right? We imagine Jesus as kind of this, you know, short-haired, you know, Republican who pays his taxes and supported the war in Iraq. And uh, yeah, so we, we all have, we all sort of do this. Um, the left, I think, does it in a more blatant way. I think on the right, we still want to argue that we're holding on to scripture um, and that that's our, 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 you know, our guide. But we, 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 you know, front load it with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's just that's the, the problem of human subjectivity in general is that we and yeah. the fact that Jesus is I mean, like, regardless of your position on Jesus's divinity or whatever, like it is just universally wet recognized throughout the Western world that Jesus is the most important historical figure to ever live. And there's not a single person who would ever want to make an argument where Jesus was on the other side. Like everyone wants Jesus to affirm all of their all of their political and social and theological positions. And I guess Giles is no different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, essentially, I think that's true. Yeah, one of the one of the really interesting things that you do in your chapter on Giles in the book is that you say that this approach to the Old Testament is not new, and in fact, it actually goes back to antiquity. And the precedent for Giles' approach to the Old Testament is a man named Marcion from the second century. Now, Marcion is kind of a, a semi-famous character within church history, and he's almost universally derided as a heretic. Explain to my audience who was Marcion, and what are the similarities between Marcion's approach to the Old Testament? 
Testament and Giles approached the Old Testament. Yeah, Marcion's a fascinating character. Um, so he, he's this controversial figure in the early church. And uh, what he did was that he created his own canon of the Bible. Um, and, and he did this by lopping off the Old Testament, essentially. So first of all, we take off take out the Old Testament. And then, as I mentioned, the New Testament is chock full of old, the Old Testament. So he has to do something about the New Testament as well. So he um, he breaks kind of breaks the canon down to, well, I'm going to keep Luke. Matthew's got too much Judaism and, and Old Testament. And, you know, Luke, John's got too much of that. I'll keep Luke. It's written by a Gentile. Maybe that's a little safer. Uh, but he's cutting out the, the Old Testament allusions. Uh, he keeps letters of Paul, but also cuts out Old Testament allusions uh, in, in quotations. And so he has this, essentially what he was motivated by was this view that the Old Testament God was a different God. He was a bad God, right? Um, and um, that sort of funnels into this kind of Gnostic idea. He's not exactly a Gnostic, but he's kind of in that milieu um, of seeing the um, seeing creation as bad, right? So the physical world is bad. If God, this God of the Old Testament creates the physical world, he's a bad God, right? And so not only is, is he bad because he creates, but he also seems to like be interested in judgment and, and so on and so forth. And so Marcion says, well, the Old Testament God's a different God. The New Testament God is this other God that I like. Um, and so I'll just cut out, cut out the things <laughs> in the New Testament that suggest that it's the same God as the Old Testament God. Um, and so uh, Giles is not going that far, but there are some similarities that are important. Um, so um, you know, like Giles, Marcion was not only suspicious of the Old Testament, but but also parts of the New Testament that contradicted his own personal reconstruction of who Jesus was, uh, which is precisely what G- uh, Giles is also doing. Um, and uh, so, so that's that's kind of the, the main the main focus is this idea that I can sort of use my own judgment to decide what is inspired in Scripture and what isn't. Um, but like I said, th- there are also important differences. The, the, to, to sum up the, the differences between Marcion and Giles in kind of a sentence, I would say it's where Marcion saw the Old Testament as a record of a different God. Uh, Giles sees the Old Testament as a deficient record of the same God that Jesus proclaimed. Yeah. Now you say, according to your, or in, you say in the book uh, towards the end of this chapter on Giles, that his position explicitly undermines the authority of scripture, which is obviously a very important concept for this show. So how do you see Giles's approach to the Old Testament as a, um, as an attack on the authority of scripture, as undermining the authority of scripture? Maybe it's, it's not, yeah, like even framing it as an attack is not correct. Cause I don't think that Giles would think that he was uh, attacking the authority of scripture, but how does it undermine it? Yeah, I mean, anyone who says that parts of the Bible aren't inspired and that they're fit to judge what is and what isn't inspired, I'd say that's a pretty clear case of undermining the authority and inspiration of Scripture and, and sitting in judgment upon it, right? So I, I start with Giles in my book because what he's doing, I think, is the most obvious example of that. Um, the other authors that, that we're going to be discussing, I think, will work harder to hold on to inspiration, but they end up undermining it in more subtle, but still very critical ways. Um, I think Giles is is coming right out a little bit more. And, 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 and you know, it, it, even in the interview I had with him, he doesn't say like, oh, I don't think, he, just, he says like, you know, I don't think the Old Testament is, we should get rid of it. I think it's valuable. You know, I think it's important. We should read it. Um, but at the end of the day, um, he doesn't see all of it as, as equally inspired. Yeah, it's it's more or less a functional denial of the Old Testament. So maybe there's maybe there's literary value of having it attached to the Bible. Maybe it does a great job of contrasting just how great the New Covenant is with the Old. But but there's no functional value in the Old Testament. Would be his point. Somewhat. I mean, so what he would sort of say is, if it sounds like Jesus and affirms what Jesus says, then it's inspired, which makes it maybe arguably um, 
superfluous, but you, but you could still sort of put some value in it and saying like, well, here's this prophecy of Jesus. And so this is confirmatory of Jesus's mission and, and, and his identity, right? So um, it still has some value. Like he, w- he wouldn't put it as, as like low as, you know, other, um, other writings that he thinks are good. Like he wouldn't say like, well, you know, the, the, the Old Testament is just as good as the Iliad or the Odyssey or something like that. Um, he would say, he would see some inspiration in it that's divine. Um, but according to basically his own, his own criteria. Right. Right. Well, yep. the next one that you are going to critique in this book is Greg Boyd. And Greg Boyd's an interesting case because I know like Doug Stewart, who is the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, loves yep. Greg Boyd. And there are a lot of libertarian oriented Christians that have really appreciated his work. Um, but you claim that he makes a couple of missteps of the Old Testament in your book. And you are going to, in the same way that you compared Giles to Marcion uh, in the second century, you're going to begin your chapter on Greg Boyd by explaining that the allegorical method of biblical interpretation uh, that is employed by the church father origin is very similar to the allegorical method that Greg Boyd is going to apply to the Old Testament. So before we can get into Boyd's understanding of the Old Testament, explain to my audience who is origin and what is his allegorical approach to scripture? Well, first of all, if, if Doug likes uh, Greg Boyd, he's a heretic. So that, that's just first of all. No, <laughs> I think kidding. we can agree on that here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, I love Doug. And, and, uh, and I like, I love a lot of what, what Greg does too. I think that what Greg is doing, I say like I know him, but I think what Boyd is doing here is that he's he's honestly struggling with stuff in the Old Testament that doesn't doesn't apply in the same way today. That doesn't fit um, kind of with, with what how Christians are supposed to sort of look at their enemies and so on and so forth. And so he's he's trying to come up with a solution, but he doesn't want to get rid of inspiration. And so I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, no matter what position you take on this, even my sort of more conservative position. I think um, there's something there's something uncomfortable that you have to do. So for me, my uncomfortable thing is I have to affirm the inspiration of passages that I might not like personally, right? That that, my, that I might struggle with on some level. Um, Boyd isn't willing to do that. He's will he, he he sort of takes the bullet another way, right? And so, um, and what he and, and essentially what what motivated him, what motivates him, is essentially the same thing that motivated Origen. So. Um, you know, Origen was this enormously influential and prolific church father from the third century. Um, he was controversial in his time, um, but even those who tried to distance themselves from his more controversial views couldn't help but admire his intellect and the enormous output of his uh, theological writing. Um, uh, Jerome, for example, the church father who was responsible for producing the, the Latin translation of the Bible that was still significant in, in Roman Catholicism today. Um he like acknowledges, you know, yeah, Origen has some views that are probably heretical, but he just like, he like basically just plagiarizes all of his commentaries because he's just, he's just so impressed with Origen's, you know, output and his, his, his thought processes. So, um, but, you know, he's also controversial. And uh, because of that, the Catholic Church today still won't call him a saint. You know, he's, and they'll call people saints from the same time period who weren't nearly as influential as he was, but because of these, some of his controversial views about, um, about hell, he was kind of this universalist. I guess you could call it that universalist. He had this view that like um, human souls preexisted their bodies, and so he had some some strange views. But anyway, um, so but he wasn't super unusual in valuing allegorical interpretation. A lot of church fathers did that. Um, but 
most of the other fathers who who use this form of interpretation would still affirm a more literal or plain sense of scripture, right? So say, yes, there is, you know, what scripture literally says, but there's also layers of meaning underneath that. And, you know, and so they would kind of, kind of dig deep for those layers of meaning. Um, but I think what Origen does here, especially in these passages where, uh, that are that are you know problematic to use, to use a contemporary word um he says well the literal meaning isn't really true at all right so if, if we have a passage about you know um you know god issuing judgment against any people or, or the you know the, the destruction of the canaanites or whatever um i'm going to allegorize that and spiritualize that entirely right um i give an example in the book about the um uh the gold bars did you remember that one um yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and so th- there was, um, um, was it? Oh gosh, was it Aiken? Yes, Aiken, who's uh, had, had kept back some of the, the the war booty for himself that was supposed to be destroyed, and he hid it under under the you know in his tent and you know dug it into the hole in the ground, and um, so there's a sort of judgment that comes against him, and like he's like he and his whole family are destroyed as a result of it, and what Origen does is he says, well, these gold bars, well, you know, the word bar in Hebrew also means tongue. And so this is about uh, being uh, being um, uh, how you have to beware the golden-tongued philosophers who want to you know teach us things that are contrary to the wisdom of Christ, you know, completely decontextualized you know re- reading of the text, uh, but it gets them out of this problem. And so uh, you know Boyd uh, doesn't do anything maybe quite that silly, um, but he does admire I think what Origen is doing in his kind of project, and, and he has a lot of sympathy for that. Um, so anyway, Origen was known for this allegorical approach, which read difficult and, and violent Old Testament passages as being only allegorical. He denied the plain reading altogether. And, um, I think there are places where Boyd is doing that. It's really just the places, incidentally, that give him, give his theology a problem. And that's, so similar to Boyd, or sorry, similar to Giles, you know, if the passage agrees with what he, what he thinks, he doesn't have a problem with it. But, but if it seems to say something that he doesn't like, then he applies these tools. So it's not, super consistent unless I guess it's consistent in the sense that the criteria is this bothers me. So I'm going to figure out a way to, to, to make it softer. Yeah. And for him too, I mean, Greg Boyd is very heroically kind of anti, like non, he's very committed to nonviolence. And a lot of his work mm-hmm. has to do with rejecting uh, like state calls to, to violent behavior and things like that. So very admirable, but a lot of what um, Greg Boyd is, is um, I guess a lot of what Greg Boyd is wary about in the old Testament has to do with those violent passages, like the Canaanite yes. conquest and things like that. Is that, that basically what his, his concern is? Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, he doesn't want to undermine the authority of Scripture. He doesn't want to get rid of inspiration, but he really struggles with these passages. And and so we'll get into, there's some really interesting things that he does um, that aren't quite like what Origen does, um, the sort of mechanisms, these what, the, what he'll call little crucifixions. Maybe we can get into that a little bit, but... Yeah, no, I, d- I definitely want to talk about that because essentially, I-, I guess based on your book, what Greg Boyd would say is that like the crucifixion is kind of the ultimate accommodation that God makes towards human beings, sacrificing his own son so that we can be in the right before him and all of that stuff. And Greg Boyd's approach is that all of these complicated um, texts in the Old Testament are like little crucifixions. What what does what does he mean by that in connection with his allegorical approach to the Old Testament? Yeah, so you know, like I said, because Boyd doesn't want to abandon Old Testament inspiration, he he wants to argue that some of these prophets have a clouded vision of God, right? So um, Jesus is suffering on the cross for his enemies. 
um, he sees that as um, the most clear picture of who God is, right? Um, and because of that, it's the standard that all other uh, biblical revelations, specifically Old Testament revelation, should be judged by. So in this regard, what he argues is, is very close to what Giles claims, though he's not going to bite the bullet and abandon inspiration. Um, so the mechanism that he uses to avoid Giles' conclusion is to see passages which um, uh, which he thinks misrepresent God as little crucifixions. So these uh, or, or small concessions that God makes to Israel in order to speak to them in a way that they would understand but which didn't accurately represent who he was. So Boyd argues that God could, uh, quote, reveal as much of his true character and will as was possible while accommodating the fallen state of his people as much as was necessary, though it certainly grieved God deeply to do so. Um, personally, I'm not satisfied with that. I mean, the idea that, um, I mean, I agree that God communicates with people, uh, you know, using human language and human figures and that he, uh, you know, transcendent truth kind of becomes, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, localized, I guess you could say, right? So I don't have a problem with that, but this idea that, well, God couldn't have said, um, you know, love your enemy. Well, first of all, he says it multiple times in the Old Testament, um, but right. <laughs> but you know, God couldn't have said something like that. What he would rather do is say, go ahead and slaughter the Canaanites. And um, I hate that you're doing it, but but this is much better than me just telling you like it is. It's like, is that really is that really satisfying to say that you know God want, God actually kind of let them do this horrible thing uh, that he didn't approve of at all? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's personally, I don't, I don't find that to be a satisfying solution. I, I don't think it gets Boyd nearly as much off the hook as he thinks it does. Right. Yeah. And and again, that undermines any attempt to try to understand those passages within their historical context as well. Because again, there's a problem with the problem with the Old Testament, like with all of Scripture, is that it was written thousands of years ago by people that had a radically different worldview than us mm -hmm. modern people. And one of the things that I've learned since I started studying the Bible critically was that if you if you look at these passages within the context of you know with the Old Testament to be the the world of the ancient Near East, there are actually a lot of cultural echoes that make a lot of these stories make sense within that cultural context. And I think that yeah. Boyd's approach screens out the possibility that we might be able to make sense of these by doing like a critical historical analysis of the text. Yeah. And there, there's one example I use in the book of, of Korah's rebellion, where the earth swallows up those who are rebelling against Moses. Right. And it says that they go down. Uh, oh, wait, no. Uh, well, I think the connection that Boyd makes is that the pit uh, is could be identified in some way with um, the, the pagan deity. Uh, is it is it Mo? Um, so anyway, yeah. Sorry, maybe that's maybe it's a rabbit trail. Maybe we shouldn't get into that one. But th there, there's um, yes, he he basically decontextualizes some of the stuff. So there's a place where if there's a place where God says he's judging, Boyd says, well, no, God's not really judging. He's just sort of stepping out of the way and allowing the natural consequences of of this of sin to to take place. And, you know, on one level, like I get that a little bit, like, you know, I think that's one way that God could judge is just to sort of step back and let things happen. You know, there's this language in, in scripture of God giving people up to their, to their sin and, the, and its consequences. Uh, but there's also this active language of God seeking to judge or punish. And I, I don't, I don't think you get around that if you want to hold on to inspiration. I mean, that means something. Right. Um, even if God uses mechanisms, even if there's different ways, you know, he can go, go about it. Um, I, I, you know, I get wanting to make God this kind of doting grandfather figure. Um, 
who, you know, could never lift a finger to, to harm anybody or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's not how scripture presents him. Scripture presents God as so much more merciful than he is uh, um, wrathful, right? You know, where, where, um, where sin abounded, uh, grace superabounded, for example, uh, or that, you know, God punishes to the third and fourth generation, but he shows mercy to thousands, the thousandth generation, right? And so there's all this language that suggests that God is so much more merciful than he is wrathful, but wrath is still a part of what he wants, of, 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 his, of his nature and what he's doing. And so for Boyd to basically say, oh, well, you know, it's just divine Aikido, you know, it, it's not, it's not active. It's just sort of this, you know, kind of response that is kind of giving people up to, to what, anyway, um, I'm, I feel like I'm ranting a little bit. So, oh, no, um, no, 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 that was great. Okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, so that there's ultimately what he's doing is he's placing something onto the text that isn't there. And I get why he's doing it. I'm also a you know, 21st century Western person. So I, I get why the, the the judgment of God stuff doesn't sound very nice. Didn't bother the ancient Israelites. It doesn't bother, uh, you know, most Muslims, but it bothers us today living in the culture that we live in. And part of that is because we're 2000 years after Jesus, right? And so Jesus has influenced this, this kind of message that he, he communicated about loving, loving your enemy and, and, and loving your neighbor and stuff like that has worked on us. And I think made us, um, you know, so much more compassionate and so much uh, more opposed to violence than, than our ancestors were. Um, but I have to say, Jesus does not dispense with entirely the idea of the wrath of God. It's still there in his thinking. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with that. Well, let's come to the third of the thinkers that you are going to critique in your book. And this is by far the most famous. So, and I, I got to, uh, before I before we start talking about Andy Stanley, I, I, I guess it was in, I don't know, his book came out in maybe 2017 or 2018. But one of my really good friends at church, Jody, was a huge Andy Stanley fan. And she mm. gave me a copy of, or let me borrow a copy of her book. I think it was in like the spring of 2019, uh, because we had been talking about the Old Testament at church, and she essentially mm-hmm. thought that Andy Stanley's position was one that was compatible with her faith. And so she gave me the book. Uh, she wanted to know what I thought about it. And I remember reading through it. And again, it's been a long time since I've actually cracked it open. But I remember feeling uh, when I came to Andy Stanley's book that his intentions were very, very pure, that he came he came mm-hmm. at his approach of, of the Old Testament with this desire to evangelize as many people as possible, but that he drew almost all of the wrong conclusions about the Old Testament. Uh, but he's extremely famous. And so a lot of people yep. know who he is, which is one of the reasons why I think his work in particular has been so influential. So for our audience, the members that might not be as familiar with famous popular Christian thinkers, could you just explain who Andy Stanley is before we get into a detailed critique of his book? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I was going to sit real quick before it pops out of my head and you talked about his kind of desire to evangelize as many people as possible. Um, you know, Stanley's a megachurch pastor. And that is absolutely his concern, uh, but but you could call it, um, you know, assembly line evangelism, right? It's like, <laughs> how do we simplify this process as much as possible? Um, which makes sense for somebody in his position as kind of this mega church pastor. You know, how, how, would, how would Henry Ford do this? Um, so, so Andy Stanley is the son of Charles Stanley, uh, which is a name that uh, if, if you're somebody who's listened to a lot of Christian radio in the last 40 years, you, you probably know. Um, but when I became, you know, converted, I listened to a lot of Christian radio. So of course I heard a lot of Charles Stanley. Um, so, um, because of, I think, you know, Stanley's pedigree, it was probably not too hard for, for Andy to get in the position that he's in. Although he also has, um, I think 
uh, not to take anything away from him, he has the skill sets that you would expect a, a good, you know, or an effective mega pastor to have, you know. Um, he's, he offers this kind of very practical pastoral advice, um, which to me, uh, what, what that usually means nowadays is this kind of, you know, sort of hokey sermonizing type stuff. Um, but, um, that's probably just my beef with what the, the role of the pastor has become in the West. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he's essentially a, uh, an effective and famous, uh, mega church pastor, um, who has made some, uh, comments, um, that have irked people specifically about the old Testament. He'd also, I think made a comment about people who, uh, uh, who prefer uh, smaller churches and small worship environments saying that they were, they were so darn selfish uh, because, <laughs> because they were more concerned with uh, being in environments where uh, you could have, uh, you know, community and family as opposed to these giant, uh, you know, evangelism campaigns. Uh, so yes, that's, that's Andy Stanley. Yeah. Uh, so before exploring his position on the Old Testament specifically, we need to talk about the difference, as you outline in your book, between covenant or between, I'm sorry, I messed that up, between covenantal theology and dispensationalism, uh, since yeah. these are kind of two different approaches to thinking about the Old Testament. And it's a theological assumption that is going to uh, separate your position from Andy Stanley. So what do each of those concepts, covenantal theology and dispensationalism, entail? And then which side of that, uh, that debate are you? you on and which side is Andy Stanley on? Yeah. So I'm going to speak very broadly about this and, and, and because I know that there's not a way I'm going to describe this. That's going to make every dispensationalist or every, you know, covenantal theologian happy. Um, so very broadly, these are two approaches to understanding how the old and new covenants fit together. So uh, covenant theologians argue that both covenants are in a sense, really one um, that everyone has always been saved by grace and that the promises to Israel really belong to the church. So they're not, they're not interested in discontinuity. They're kind of looking back at the Old Testament through where we are now and sort of retroactively, you know, following that thread through to the beginning. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, they see different periods of time, which reflect different ways that God deals with his people and even different ways in which his church, his people would be saved, right? So Israel, um, you know, maybe was saved by the law. You know, Adam certainly was saved by law keeping. If he would have uh, obeyed God and not eaten the fruit of the tree, then he'd be saved, right? And so dispensationalists kind of separate what God's doing into these different eras. um, And uh, and as a result of that, it's kind of, there's not a lot of continuity going back, you know, through those eras. So at the extreme, you have like this kind of hyper dispensationalism, which sees all pre-church era scripture. So the Old Testament, of course, but even the words of Jesus, um, they would say, well, yeah, it's inspired, but it's not relevant at all for the practices of the church today. Right. So if Jesus said it, well, he was still talking to Jews. That's not for us. Right. And so if Paul says it, that might maybe that's that. Anyway, so there's some people on the extreme of this of the dispensationalist movement that would basically say only what Paul says really is relevant for us. Um, so I'm not entirely in the covenantal camp. I, I do think that Christians are part of a different covenant that this should significantly reshape how we read and apply the Old Testament. Um, I think Israel's different than the church, but I do think that um, that the covenantal view gets some important things right about the importance of the Old Testament and salvation by grace always being part of God's plan. Um, I think that Stanley's view leans into the excesses of dispensationalism that wants to kind of make the Old Testament irrelevant. So um, it was hard for me to find somebody who was saying exactly what Stanley was saying uh, in the in the early church because his his view is more nuanced than. Um, certainly Giles, but even Boyd's. Um, but, but I did find something in this kind of, you know, aggressive dispensationalist theology that was kind of a, 
a reflection of what Stanley is doing. Incidentally, his father is a Southern Baptist dispensationalist uh, thinker. So there's a, right. yeah. <laughs> so like father, like son. Um, yeah. Andy Stanley's book is called Irresistible, I think, which speaks to the thesis of his book, which is essentially that the Old Testament is so complicated and so confusing that it pushes a lot of people away. It causes them to resist putting their faith in Christ. And so if we are able to just kind of, you know, relegate the Old Testament to a previous dispensation, then we solve a lot mm-hmm. of the resistance that people have towards Christianity. And again, like I know I like when I was in high school, I read the New Testament like over and over and over again, but I didn't really touch the Old Testament hardly at all until mm. I got to college, and I was lucky enough to be like at a school where I could study the Old Testament. Like as soon as I started reading it, I was able to study it from a historical perspective, which shined a lot of light on it. But I, I get it. Like if you are someone who is familiar with the New Testament, and you go back and start reading uh, several places in the Old Testament. It's very confusing and very complicated, and so I understand why there are a lot of people that want to uh, kind of keep themselves at arm's distance from the Old Testament because it is complicated. And I think that it does turn a lot of people off. Um, that's not a reason to reject it, obviously. But uh, but that's the, the that's more or less the thesis that that Stanley is making. What are what are the main points of his argument? So how does he fill out that thesis with his, with his approach to the Old Testament? Yeah. So you know, like I said, Stanley's denial of the Old Testament is the most subtle of the three that I, I discuss. So he doesn't claim that it isn't inspired, or even that it gets Jesus wrong. His argument really has two major components. Uh, one is we don't need the Old Testament to preach the gospel. And two is the Old Testament is actually a liability in defending the gospel. So, so this, this is a quote from Stanley. The Christian faith doesn't need to be propped up by the Jewish scriptures. In a post-Christian context, our faith actually does better without Old Covenant support. This was not the case in the first century. And therein lies part of the confusion. The apostles appropriately leveraged the Old Testament to make their case to their Jewish brothers and sisters. But they typically did not leverage the Jewish scriptures to make their case to the Gentile world. When preaching to Gentiles, they leveraged a more recent development, the resurrection. We should follow their example. Uh, end quote. And ironically, um, one of the examples he uses of this, uh, the apostles preaching to Gentiles in a different way, is Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, right? And so this is Paul speaking to these Athenian pagans, um, and it's, it's ironic that he appeals to it because, well, well first of all, it's a, it's a short sermon, you know, Luke is abridging what Paul's saying. We don't know if uh, Paul actually quotes the Old Testament or not, but in the in Luke's abridgment of it, there's not Old Testament quotation. So we'll, I'll give him that. Uh, but what Paul does is he appeals to Old Testament teaching on things like, uh, you know, one creator God and humanity's shared lineage, uh, this kind of God made uh, out of out of one, one man, out of, you know, many, right, you know, many nations. And so Paul is appealing to all these Old Testament ideas, and, and his pagan audience is tracking with him. Okay, sure, yeah, sounds good. And then he starts talking about the resurrection, and then he gets laughed off the hill. So it, it's it's kind of funny that Stanley cites this because ultimately what Paul thought was really sort of essential to the faith, to the gospel, this, this resurrection idea, um, that was what they weren't willing to consider because that was the most foreign to them. Um, so anyway, it, it's ironic for that reason that, that Stanley uses this as, as a good example of, of, of how we should be preaching. Um, you know, one thing I will say is, you know, largely what Stanley's concern is, is practical, but it has some, it has some, some, you know, consequences. You know, if you start to think of the Old Testament as an appendix that you, you know, might visit occasionally, that has some impact on your theology and how you see God's story and how you see the God of the Old Testament, right? But there is this practical question about, what is it that we're preaching when we're preaching the gospel? And I think that you can 
simplify the gospel as much as you want. You can always break something down, right? And into the, you know, the, the most basic form. And so, um, you know, if we were talking about, you know, what is the gospel simply? Well, you know, Jesus talks about it as the kingdom of God coming. That That's his sort of simple gospel presentation. Uh, Paul in places um, emphasizes this idea of this kind of individual choice to turn and repent um, that Jesus died for your sins that um, was raised um, for your, you know, that you're raised with him. So there, there's these, the question is how simple do you have to get <laughs> in order? And, and, and I think there's people who are going to be saved on very simple gospel presentations that don't reference the old Testament in any explicit way. Right. So I don't have a problem with that idea. Uh, but I think when, when Stanley says that we don't need it to preach the gospel, it's like, well, you also don't need the new Testament to preach the gospel. You don't need the gospels to preach the gospel. You don't need Paul to preach the gospel. You know, you, you can, you can use any words you want to, <laughs> as long as you're sort of getting, getting it more or less correct. Um, but that is not how Jesus and Paul preach the gospel. And so um, the way they see the gospel, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, is that it's very much integrated with the Old Testament story. And so when we say that it's not important, that we don't need it, I, I think we're on some level, what we're sort of saying is, well, we must have a different kind of gospel than Paul and Jesus had. Yeah. Why do you think Andy, uh, Andy Stanley's approach is so appealing to many people? Is it just that he's a good communicator? Or what, what, what do you think about it uh, and the way that he approaches the Old Testament? What, what is appealing to the average person about that? Yeah. There's a couple of reasons why it's appealing. I, I think, first of all, we, we don't read the Old Testament much, and its context feels more foreign and ancient to us. Um, Jesus feels a little more modern in some ways. Um, also, there's a lot less historical context to understand, right? You know, when, when you're reading Isaiah or one of the minor prophets or something, okay, what's going on here? What's the background? And some some scholars aren't even sure, right? Uh, and there's questions like that in the New Testament, but basically it's a much shorter period of time. And, you know, anyway, so it's a little easier to understand. Um, so, yes, yeah, so first of all, the Old Testament, it feels more foreign and ancient to us. And so it's easier to say, well, that's that's just, that isn't important. I just want to defend the resurrection. That's easy, Right. I've got my sort of, you know, uh, my arguments together for defending the resurrection. I've, I've listened to my, you know, Gary Habermas or my William Lane Craig, or I've read my, you know, Josh McDowell or whatever. I'm ready. I can do this, you know. Um, but, you know, to have to defend the whole Old Testament, oh, man, that's that's a lot more work. So I think the first issue is, you know, maybe laziness or, or more charitably uh, simplicity. Um, you know, I, I'd rather just be able to defend the resur- resurrection of Jesus than the entire Bible. So that's that's one uh, the other thing is that, um, you know, as you alluded to earlier, there are passages in the Old Testament that are difficult, right? So the holy war against the Canaanites, for one, that's that's difficult on, on one level, but also like this ostensible six-day creation in Genesis 1, right? And so being able to say that we can just set that stuff aside because it doesn't really matter um, is emotionally satisfying, right? Okay, I don't have to worry about that. Um, and, you know, and so that's emotionally relieving. Um, so that impulse I can understand better, I think, but where its benefit is emotion, this kind of emotional relief, um, its downside is intellectual dishonesty. I can't personally live with that dishonesty and comfortably call myself a follower of Christ. Um, I want to affirm what Christ affirms and, you know, (laughs) follow him where he goes and, and not just sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to kind of cut this up and make this my own. 
Yeah. And I, I completely agree with you that the Old Testament cannot be unhitched from the New Testament. In fact, like, like, like you've alluded to many times in this conversation, the prerequisite for truly understanding the New Testament is the Old Testament. Go ahead and make the yeah. case to my audience for the Old Testament. Why should Christians read the Old Testament, and what is the significance of the Old Testament for Christian faith? Yeah, Jesus and the apostles regularly appeal to the Old Testament as this kind of riddle or question that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus answer. So when Jesus begins his public ministry and he wants to explain himself and his mission, he stands up and he reads from Isaiah. When Paul explains his gospel, uh, he does so by calling Jesus a new Adam and a new David. So essentially, the gospel is the conjunction of two ideas, the promises of God in the Old Testament and their coming to fruition and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Or as a, a theologian Scott McKnight said, uh, the story of Jesus resolving the story of Israel. So you can proclaim Jesus without explicit reference to the Old Testament prophets, prop, uh, promises. That's true. Um, but if w- when you do so, you're not proclaiming the gospel as Jesus or Paul defended it or defined it, right? Um, as Christians, uh, we appeal to the Old Testament not because without it we can't be saved. We, we also can be saved without reading the New Testament, um, but because we desire to know God's character and his purposes more deeply. Um, we want to, I think, understand where the story is going and, and where it's coming from so that it fits together. Um, but the Old Testament also gives us insight into who God is. It gives us wisdom for living, even though it reflects a covenant that's not ours anymore. We're, you know, we're in the new covenant. Um, and, and I, you know, I think probably most importantly for the, the apostles is that it gives us the questions which we find answered in Christ. So it's still important today. Uh, Paul goes so far as to say that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Uh, he says that in a couple of places, uh, Romans 15, 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and that it was breathed out by God to teach us, correct us, and equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy three sixteen. And that isn't changed by the fact that the Old Covenant is not our covenant. We're not under the law of Moses, that's true. But one mistake that some of these unhitchers make is to confuse the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. They're different. Um, the old covenant is not our covenant agreed, but the old Testament is our scripture. So the old covenant may be obsolete. The old Testament is not. Um, and so that, that's an important distinction to make. Yeah. So what advice would you give to somebody who is struggling with understanding the old Testament? Yeah. So first I'd say, remember that everything in the old Testament was inspired by God for a reason. So I would encourage them to, you know, study it carefully to discern what those reasons are. Um, if they're still struggling, if they can't figure it out alone, I'd say, hey, you're in luck. There are scholars, elders, other Christians, uh, and not just you know in your community or in your church, but in various times and places, you know, uh, theologians and thinkers and church fathers, and they also have the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and they've searched these things out carefully for themselves. And so I'd lean on their insights, um, you know, to, to, to for for assistance, right? And thirdly, if you've done all this work uh, and there's still parts you don't understand. Uh, well, you're in good company, but lean on what you do understand, including the most essential parts of your faith. So, you know, this is, uh, there's a little part of what some of these guys are saying that I get, which is if you're struggling to understand it, what's the center? What's the central thing that, that, that we want to be focusing on? Well, that's Jesus. It's Jesus, the kingdom of God, love for God and neighbor, these kind of important things that uh, these sort of threads throughout scripture that do kind of give us a, this sort of a, a picture of, of what of what our faith is at its at its core, right? So lean on those things, sure. 
but that doesn't mean that anything else you just throw away. And so that, that's really my, my issue. So if somebody is, is struggling and they can't find the answers, uh, they're doing their best. Well, I, I, you know, I think that person should give themselves permission to not, um, you know, live in theological or, or spiritual limbo until they find the answer. It's okay to just say, I don't know the answer to this one. I don't know how to figure this one out. I'm going to table that for now. And I'm going to lean on the stuff that I do know. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, for example, you know, the destruction of the Canaanites, that's a tough one, but luckily we do know that Jesus gives us an example for how we are supposed to live today. And so we don't have to worry about whether we might be disobeying God by not destroying the Canaanites. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, we can lean on, we can lean on what Jesus, I mean, Jesus comes later. He does clarify things. He abrogates some things. There are things in the old Testament that Jesus says that's not significant anymore. Um, you know, Israel was a physical kingdom on earth. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so that behaves differently. It works differently. Uh, violence is how physical kingdoms uh, prop themselves up, but it's not how spiritual kingdoms prop themselves up. So, you know, we don't have to, you know, worry about that in that sense. Um, I think we have to affirm that it's in scripture and that it's inspired, whatever those passages are inspired, whatever that means. Um, and we can disagree on a little bit on what that means, but um but yeah, just I would just say allow what's clear and obvious to guide you instead of getting held up on what isn't clear or that which is difficult to understand right now. Yeah. Well, you have an appendix where you use your model of Old Testament interpretation to explain the problem of slavery, which is a very hot-button topic today in biblical studies yeah. and in theology. Walk me through how your hermeneutical posture towards the Old Testament deals with the issue of slavery. Yeah, there's a helpful book that I point to um, by William Webb, which is called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. And it's it's, it's an interesting book title, uh, but it's really about um, uh, what he calls a redemptive movement hermeneutic. And so uh, what this hermeneutic does is it argues that there's this trajectory from the time and place when the Bible is written uh, that kind of points ahead to a more perfect ideal. So the Old Testament starts, I I think, this this process when it comes to slavery by allowing um, for a form of slavery in ancient Israel, but also regulating it very differently from the way its neighbors did and seeing slaves very differently than their neighbors did. You know, if if you read... um, you know, some of the other uh, ancient law law codes, Code of Hammurabi, for example, uh, there are some really interesting parallels uh, to what you have in the Old Testament, uh, but the divergences are more important. So like a passage might start, you know, with some of the same language or, or some of the, or describing sort of the same situation, but it ends very differently. So in the Old Testament, somebody in the Torah, for example, the, the Pentateuch, where they're given the laws for, for how to regulate slavery, a slave who escapes from his master is to be welcomed into a town and not sent back. And the Code of Hammurabi, a slave who uh, is is um, um, you know brought in or protected or hidden, the person who helps that slave is to be executed. I'm pretty sure that was how that worked. I'm trying to remember if it was. It might have been a lower, less severe penalty, but I'm pretty sure it was execution. Um, so, th- so those are that's a that's a very different perspective. Um, there were not generally penalties for how you treated a slave, beating a slave, killing a slave. They weren't really human, right? Uh, if you if you killed someone else's slave, you owed them uh, restitution because you've you've cost them something financially. Um, but but slaves were not thought of as really as people. Um, uh, oh, anyway, so I was going to rabbit trail, but I decided not to. Okay, so uh, so there's all these really important differences between 
the way that slavery is understood at the time versus the way the Torah regulates it. So the Torah does other things. It creates term limits for Hebrew debt slavery. It made man stealing a capital offense. Um, it held slaveholders accountable for the treatment of slaves. If you killed your slave, uh, that that uh, slave's death was to be avenged. Um, it did allow for some kind of physical punishments for slaves, which, uh, which I, like I said, I'm not emotionally satisfied with, but I also understand logically that if you have people that um, you can't fire, <laughs> um, then I, I suppose it kind of makes sense in one sense that there's a way that you sort of force them to fulfill their, essentially what, what it would have been as a contract, because in most cases you would sell yourself into debt slavery to pay off the debt. And so there's, you can imagine that people would do that and then try to slack off and not, you know, fulfill their obligations. So then physical punishment becomes a thing that some slaveholders would do. However, if your slaveholder was, you know, super aggressive in some way, like knocking out a tooth, knocking out an eye, that slave was supposed to go free. So it's not a perfect solution that I'm happy with, but it's really interesting how there's this movement in this other direction away from the way that it was then. Um, and um, it also, you know, incidentally, the Torah made Israel's pivotal event, uh, their redemption from slavery in Egypt. So there's this big story about redemption from slavery that also sort of shapes the, the Israelite mind, right? Um, and so despite what, uh, so that's the Torah, uh, then we move into the New Testament. Despite what Giles might hope, Jesus does not really, doesn't actually critique slavery explicitly at all. Um, uh, his teaching about loving one's neighbors and treating them how they want to be treated, I think logically entails the abolition of slavery. Although, you know, you, you never see, uh, you know, anybody in the New Testament say, call your senator and ask them to, you know, <laughs> there's not really this political movement because that wasn't really possible. Right. Um, but yes, but I would say loving your neighbor doesn't tell the end of slavery. Um, but I think Paul actually is, is more dramatic on this point um, than Jesus is. You know, he talks about, um, you know, Christian brotherhood, um, the, the treatment of slaves. If you read uh, Philemon, for example, there's this, this situation where a slave uh, of somebody that Paul had known in a church escapes and uh, finds Paul in Rome where he, I think he's in Rome. Yeah, he's in Rome, right? Where he's in jail. And, um, uh, so ends up helping Paul and Paul writes this letter to kind of reconcile this relationship. And he says, you know, you should take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, because in the process of this, the slave running away, he becomes a Christian after he meets Paul. And so, you know, what does it mean to not be a slave anymore, but a brother in Christ? Now, you know, it's interesting, you know, Paul never anywhere explicitly says we need to abolish slavery. If you're a Christian and, and you have slaves, you need to free them. I, I think it's contested as to what exactly, if that would have even really been allowed in that, in that period. But, um, so anyway, yes, what you do have is this movement, something pointing to something else. Um, and, um, so what Webb is sort of doing is he's kind of starting with the time in which it was written. And then if you have old and new testaments, you can kind of follow a trajectory that way as well. And then what's the trajectory leading to? Um, and, uh, incidentally, I, I have a, um, an article that's supposed to come out soon, I think for the Libertarian Christian Institute, where I parallel what the Bible does on this issue with, what the U.S. Constitution did, and, and the debates around it that the abolitionist movement had, which which is pretty interesting, that you might appreciate when it when it hits. Oh yeah, that'll be an excellent article, and uh, we'll we'll make sure we post some links to it on the show, and I'm sure I'll, I'm sure it'll wind up on my Twitter page too. So that sounds like a really great cool. article. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of get into something that I know is, is a little controversial. And as I say this, I know that a lot of the terms that we use to describe these hermeneutical phenomenon are loaded. What are your thoughts on passages in the Old Testament, like Genesis 1 through 11, or like the book of Jonah, where the historicity, whatever we might mean by that term, is contested? In other words, people say that it's in the Old Testament, but it didn't actually happen in history. What are your thoughts on that phenomenon there? Yeah, I mean, historicity isn't a requirement for inspiration. Is we know I'd say first of all, we don't have any issue with seeing Jesus's parable of the prodigal son as non-historical because we understand that his intention was not to recall a historical event. Um, but we still see it as divinely inspired, right? So what? So basically, what is the author's intention? I think that's really the key. Um, what is he trying to convey? Um, uh, you know were they telling us history or, or something else? And when it comes to Jonah or Genesis one through 11, I think that their authors might be trying to tell us about a historical event. That's at least possible. Right. But I think the larger theological significance of these stories is probably more important. And I would say it's also probably more likely the main point being conveyed. So um, I wouldn't get too caught up in trying to defend a six day creation, for example. Um, you know, I think the scientific evidence is pretty strongly against that. But, but you know, sometimes there there are major shifts in scientific thinking, and, and pre- previous views are you know, uh, you know, disturbed, and something new comes out. So I at least have to admit that it's possible that someday we'll find out that the Earth is only six thousand years old, and maybe that's what maybe that's what the author intended for us to understand. Uh, but I don't think that's really central. You know, um, I feel more attached to a historical Adam because I, I think it seems more important. I think it seems very important to Paul's view of sin and anthropology. I don't really want to jettison that if I can help it. But I think even there, there, there's a way to maintain the theological significance of Adam without holding to his historicity, right? Um, but what I, I can't give up, what I think is most central to like Genesis, for example, is what it says about God as creator and about the place that he gave humanity as his imagers and co-workers on earth. And some of these, you know, some of these major points that sort of come out, you know, um, you know, God is the, 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 the one who sort of brings order to the universe. Those things are more important than what happened on day three and is day three literal. Um, so maybe the author meant to tell us something about the chronology that was really important. Um, but maybe not, maybe that wasn't the the most central thing. Uh, well, I know it was, I would say, I feel confident that it wasn't the most central thing, but maybe it's still important. Right. Um, so in short, I guess I'd have two things to say about the historicity of these stories. I didn't really mention Jonah, but that's another one of those stories that, um, is, does it have to be historical? Like it, it mentions place names and stuff. So we feel like maybe it probably is, but it doesn't have to be right. Um, you know, the, uh, the parable of the, um, um, uh, the good Samaritan also mentions place names, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so in short, so I, I have two things to say about these stories. Um, one is that I think the most important truths here are not historical, but theological The history might be important too, but it's not as important as the theology. That's what I think we all have to kind of affirm. Um, and two, if the authors, divine and human, because that's that's important here, meant for us to take these stories as literal history, that's how we should understand them. If not, then we should understand them how they meant us to understand them. And I think that's what believing in inspiration means. It's not holding to a kind of wooden literalism where, you know, Revelation is describing a literal dragon coming out of the sea or something. Uh, that's not the point. Um, that That's not what inspiration, that's, that's not what holding to inspiration really means. Um but 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 also yes, if the author intends to give us a history lesson, then 
uh, then I guess we'd have to affirm that that's true history. But I think you can debate that on some of these on some of these places. Yeah, and I I think you're right. One of the problems that a lot of Christians get into, especially with regards to the debate around Genesis and what Genesis one through eleven is designed to do within its context of the Pentateuch and everything else, is that we wind up accidentally screening out like the really important points that these authors want to make mm-hmm. in favor of trying to defend our you know position of whether or not the Earth was created in six literal days or was it a, a period of time. So a lot, a lot of these arguments actually force us to miss the point that the author was obviously trying to make. And like you said, that's a that's a really big problem when it comes to actually um, to actually, uh, I guess, uh, embracing whatever message it was that author was trying to to communicate with us. Yeah, I mean, I mean look for example, the Tower of Babel story. Right, that's a really fascinating story. You can actually find it in other cultures, interestingly enough, or, or versions of it that are very similar to it, uh, which makes some people think that maybe there's some historicity behind it. Um, but it's interesting to, to read it because if we, if we understand Genesis is being written entirely by Moses, then, then that comes hundreds of years before the Babylonian captivity. But there's this really fascinating, it's the tower of Babel. Where, you know, where's that coming from? Well, it's so fascinating that it sounds like Babylon, right? And, and it's this empire sort of that tries to sort of, you know, consolidate all human beings under its, uh, you know, under its umbrella. Um, and could that be a, a critique of Babylon and the empire emperor, right? Could this be something that is kind of, you know, maybe this is a story that's not historically literal, but it's, but it's meant to explain the history and the theology of Israel and, and Judah, right? Uh, that's, I mean, I think that's very possible. And, and so I think to sort of say out of hand, um, I have to understand this as historical or else I don't believe in inspiration. Well, that's not really true, you know, because there's plenty of things in the Bible that we don't understand as historical, but we believe are inspired. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's really just a matter of hermeneutics. What are you reading and what did the author mean? And if, if, you know, if the Tower of Babel is supposed to be a historical story, then we should understand it that way. But, but, like I said, I think there's some debate about that that's reasonable. Yeah, and and again, just kind of just kind of put a fine point on this too, and and, and kind of I guess I guess put a bow on on everything that we've been saying so far today. I really do think that the Old Testament is incredibly nuanced and incredibly diverse, and there's a lot of there's a lot of really amazing points that are made in a variety of different ways. And one of the problems with Giles and with Boyd and with Stanley is that their approaches the Old Testament flatten all of that out, and it and it makes it very hard for us to pick up on the very profound nuances that the various writers of the Old Testament want us to to get out of engaging with their works. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just as an example, the, the the destruction of the Canaanites. So let's say that it's possible that that's not real history, and that the author wanted to convey something else. Well, if, if you can make a case for that, I'll, I'll hear it. You know, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy with that not being a historical event. Right. <laughs> you know, if that's what. You know, if that's what really is, is the case, right? Um, but but if that's what the author is wanting to communicate, that that's real, um, then I think believing in inspiration means affirming that it happened, that God that God asked for that to take place. Um, but but I think, you know, if I were convinced that that was not a historical account, and that's not how I should be reading it. Um, I could still be affirming inspiration because I because what my argument would be is well maybe that's not what the author wanted to convey. But I think if you sort of have this position that, well, no, that's what the author wanted to convey, but that's not how I'm going to read it. Like, I'm just going to deny it. <laughs> you're not, you're not holding inspiration anymore. So it's, it's very different. I think, you know, anyway, it's at least possible to get to some of the same places that these guys do uh, without getting, without jettisoning an inspiration. Um, 
But anyway. Right. No. And, and that's kind of my approach to the book of Jonah, too. I think that there are some prophets that are uh, recording things that actually happen in history. I tend to view yeah. Jonah for literary reasons that are internal within the prophet uh, itself, that Jonah is more or less an extended parable. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't think that Jonah could have survived three days in the belly of a whale had God intended him to do so. And so a purely historical reading of Jonah is not outside of the realm of possibility for me. There are just internal reasons within the text that make me think that that yeah. is an extended parable. But again, the collection or the Old Testament is a collection of various works. So just because I have that approach to the book of Jonah doesn't mean, A, that I don't think that God is capable of doing the things that are attributed to him in Jonah, and B, that I necessarily sure. have that same hermeneutical posture towards all of the other texts that are in the Old Testament. It's nuanced, and it's complicated, and we have to treat each text as its own individual literary unit instead of just, like I said before, flattening everything out into saying, well, it either, it either had to have happened exactly as as, as it's recorded or it's all wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's like the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Is that a parable or is it a, is it a historical event? Right. And you, you have to make arguments based on what's there, what the literary features of the text are. Um, you don't just go, well, I don't like what it says about hell. So I, it's not inspired. You know, it's like, that's not how you approach right. it. If you're trying to be a faithful Christian, um, and so, but yeah, but you, you can make an argument based on the literary features, the internal evidence that it's parabolic or, or, or historical that, 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 and that's a completely different conversation. Right. Yeah. No, I, I really, I really like that approach. Well, I guess to, as we wrap up today, it's, it's very obvious that Christianity in the Western world is, you know, I guess the pessimistic view would be that Christianity is dying in the West or the optimistic view is maybe mm -hmm. that it's kind of like a tide that is receding and hopefully will eventually uh, come closer to the shore, so to speak. Do you attribute the, uh, the, the death of Christianity or the recession of Christianity in the West to, the work of think, <clears throat> I'm sorry, to the work of thinkers like Andy Stanley, and uh, what do you think it would take to restore the Western Church? Yeah, in incidentally, the, the the language Christianity in the West is dying brings to mind a, a book by a theologian named Brent Strawn called "The Old Testament Is Dying" that, that came out maybe about ten years ago. Uh, and I can't help but think that's a, that's not a coincidence. No. <laughs> um, but the um, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's a pretty big question. Um, it, it might be bigger than I, than I could answer and there's a lot of places I could go here, but um, to maybe kind of focus that in on the conversation we're having a little bit, I think that we're getting hit from both sides. Um, so to the left, there are those who want to discredit the biblical meta narrative um, in some way or another, whether they say it's just completely flat out false. Um, and, you know, here's some, you know, uh, here's some new meta narrative about, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the exercise of our, our glands or something like that. And that's, that's what really makes us happy, you know, <laughs> you know, sex or, 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 uh, you know, having a good job or something. Um, so we're getting hit on that side. Um, but on the other side, um, there are those to the right, uh, to the right, I don't know, I'll say of us, I guess, but maybe people who would call themselves Christians, people who hold to inerrancy, but they undermine the Bible's demands, for us when it comes to things like eschewing abuse of power and following Jesus' model of nonviolent love. So I think the right discredits our witness and people who call themselves Christian, but are on the right and people who call themselves maybe Christian a little bit who are on the left. I think they discredit our theology. They discredit um, the foundation of our theology in scripture. Um, so I think this makes the gospel seem less relevant to us today. It seems less intellectually relevant because the left is always working on trying to minimize it's truth, the truth claims that are there. 
And, but I think it also seems less practically relevant because we see the people who claim to be the most religious who are behaving um, in the most hedonistic ways. Um, so I think that Stanley is honestly trying to make the gospel more relevant by emphasizing what he thinks is universal in it and marginalizing what he thinks is foreign to our moment and that might actually make it harder for people to to accept it. But I, I actually... I disagree. I think a deeper appreciation for the biblical story and our place in it will cause us to see Christianity as alive and relevant and make us want to live as if, as if it's true as well. Now, I, I'm somebody who I like to believe things because I think they're true, you know, and not everybody's that way. <laughs> a lot of people, um, they want to belong, but, but there's, um, I think we have to accept the fact that there are people who are going to approach these questions differently. They're going to approach what they think is true or good or beautiful in different ways. Um, but to me, is what Stanley is doing going to satisfy any of those people? Um, it might satisfy people who are very comfortable with um, intellectual contradiction. They don't mind that as long as they don't have this kind of emotional turmoil as they're struggling with things that are difficult. Um, so some of those people might find that satisfying. Um, but but to me, I mean. I think people want to be part of a community and they want to be part of a, a, a big story. And I, and I ultimately what Stanley and I think even Giles and Boyd a little bit are doing um, are undermining that story. You know, the, the gospel as, as Paul and Jesus describe it is inseparable from the old Testament. You know, it's, 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 as, as McKnight said, the gospel is the story of Israel resolved in the story of Jesus. And so if you don't have that resolution, how significant is the story of Jesus really? And I think what we've seen, um, you know, Stanley is what he's doing in one sense is not new because we have both seen this kind of um, this thing on sort of the theological right, which is um, like an easy believism where it's sort of like, you know, here's the gospel. It's Jesus died for your sins. And it becomes it, it cheapens the story. Do you know what I mean? We, they've simplified it so much that it's meaningless. Um, and what they're saying is not false, but there's no context to it. Um, it it's, you know, it's like, um, it's like if I said, you know, did you, you ever see the movie, The Sixth Sense? Uh, you know, a long time ago, but yes, yes, I do remember. Okay. That. okay. So, you know, maybe not everybody loves that movie. I think it's a pretty good movie, but, um, you know, if you were to watch The Sixth Sense from beginning to end and sort of watch the, the shape of it and the contours and the ups and downs and the, all the dramatic things, and then you get to that end reveal, and then you go, wow, and it's part of the whole experience. That's very different than if I walked up to you and I said, Bruce Willis is actually dead the whole movie. Like, you know, it, it's not the, it's not the same. You're not part of the story. It's, it's not the emotional impact of it is not there. Um, and so I kind of feel like that's what Stanley and this kind of, he, he's coming at it a little bit differently, but what he's doing is not that different from the way that we've done evangelism in the United States at the very least uh, for a while, the, you know, the, the, the Jesus saves banner and that's it, you know, um, like it's not false, but does it mean anything to me? But, but, but I think when you, what I think is so impressive, so amazing to Paul is that when he finds out that Jesus is the Messiah, he goes back and looks at the old Testament and he was like, my God, it was there all along. Right. And, and, you know, he wants to be part of that story and he wants to be part of that story so much that, you know, he doesn't care if they stone him <laughs> or, you know, or whatever happens to him. Um, he wants to be part of that story. And, and, and I think, 
that is, I think, one of the big dangers of lopping off the Old Testament is it's gone. You know, it's 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 Jesus saves theology, which once again, not false, but but is it is it is it everything that we want to say? And and I would say no. Yeah. Well, Cody Cook, this has been a great conversation. The book is unhitched. I'm going to put some links to it in the show notes. Is there a place where it's better for you as an author for people to buy it? I mean, I always recommend Amazon because it's easy. But do do you have like a do you have a personal store? Or is Amazon the best place to go? Yeah, Amazon's fine. I've mostly used Amazon just for simplicity, and I always keep my books really cheap because you know I'd love one day to just be able to make a living doing this kind of thing. But my my, my primary concern is if I think it's a good, an interesting idea or a good idea, I want people to be able to access it. So you can buy stuff, uh, buy books on my books on Amazon. They're they're super cheap there. Um, but you could also just shoot me an email if you go to my website and find my email address, um, or, or or send me a Facebook message or whatever. I'm happy to send you anything you like. A lot of what I do. Um, a lot of my work, especially of late, um, focuses on like Christian anarchism and, and, and that kind of thing. But, but uh, I've also focused on these other other issues that are theological. So, yeah. But, but anywhere, basically, Amazon be the, the pretty much the only place to buy it. I think at this point, um, I've got a few books on Audible, which is also connected to Amazon. But yeah, <laughs> perfect. Well, where can people find the rest of your work? Yeah, it's uh, I'd go to cantusfirmus.com. I went with a website that was easy, hard for people to spell and know how to remember, but uh, it's C A N T U S, and then there's a dash, then F I R M U S.com, Cantus Firmus. Uh, I assume they could probably f- find the, the link on, in your show notes as well. Um, and I'm also going to be producing more articles for LCI uh, since I joined the team. Uh, so you can also find my stuff there. Perfect. Well, Cody, this has been a great conversation. I'm looking forward to working with you over at LCI. Absolutely. We'll have some nice chats around the water cooler. It'll be great. It'll be great. Well, hey, really, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Cody. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. You can follow me at the handle at ProLibertyPod. Again, that is at ProLibertyPod. And you can also visit me at TheProtestantLibertarianPodcast.com. At TheProtestantLibertarianPodcast.com, you can also support the Christians for Liberty Network and the Libertarian Christian Institute. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you next Tuesday.